0: Good morning. Hope you've had a wonderful week and are excited to be here in the house of the Lord today as we come to God's Word. And as we do so, please be turning to 1 Thessalonians, where we read just a moment ago. I mentioned last Sunday that we would begin journeying through this great letter today. I'm excited to journey through this letter and to follow it with 2 Thessalonians. These are two great letters of the New Testament Our goal is to maybe get through them sometime this summer and begin toward the end of summer a long journey through the New Testament letter to the Hebrews. You know, one of the unfortunate truths about this letter, these letters to the Thessalonians, are that they're so often overlooked. I saw a list some time ago of the least preached books of the New Testament, and both of these letters made it on the list. That's unfortunate because this is such an early letter depending on how you would date Galatians, this may be the earliest. In fact, most would argue it is the earliest letter that we have. And therefore, it's important for us to recognize the importance of this letter. It would be important whenever it was written, but as the earliest letter, it gives us a unique window into the ministry, if you will, of the church in those earliest days. Now, just because it's an early window, we shouldn't expect to find something completely different. We reject any of the arguments of the liberal scholars who would say that we might see a different theology in these earliest works. It isn't as if Paul has an early theology and then later uh, comes to a full-bloomed theology in Ephesians and Romans. No, my friends, we believe in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that Paul was just as accurate when he wrote 1 Thessalonians as he was when he wrote Romans. In fact, the theology that Paul presents in these earliest letters is remarkably consistent with that of his later letters. Now, this doesn't surprise anyone that holds to the inspiration of the Scriptures. And so this morning, as we come to this letter, written two millennia ago, a letter that we should pay great attention to, I pray that we will hear the testimony of the Word of God. Warmly written to a newborn congregation in the city of Thessalonica, the Apostle Paul is gravely concerned, gravely concerned, For the physical and spiritual security of these believers, having been forced out of the city in the face of persecution, Paul was troubled that they had not yet received the needed doctrinal foundation that would be required to stand in a day of testing. Imagine then Paul's pleasure when he receives a positive report on this congregation. In response, he wrote this letter. I want you to listen to the very first verse as we get set to begin our journey. Uh, through this letter. We're going to look at this first verse today, but we're also going to turn to the Acts of the Apostles to see the historical record of this time in the life of Paul and his co-workers. The letter begins, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now with that greeting... Paul begins this great letter. And as we embark on our journey today through 1 Thessalonians, I want us to consider three introductory points. First, we want to see that this letter has a group greeting. A group greeting. Second of all, we want to see that this missionary work has a hazardous history. A hazardous history. And third and finally, we want to see Paul's recognition that God has a powerful purpose for bringing the gospel to Macedonia. God has a powerful purpose. So, beginning with this idea of a group greeting, we should begin where the letter begins, at the very first verse. This is a real letter written by a real author to a real church. It will not surprise us then that Paul and his companions begin with a real greeting to a real audience, the church at Thessalonica. What might surprise an uncareful reader? is that this letter, as with many of Paul's epistles, begins with a joint greeting. This first letter to the Thessalonians begins by stating that it is from Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. Now we have no trouble identifying the first-named author, the Apostle Paul, the former persecutor of the church, transformed by the grace of God to be a mighty missionary of the faith. In these missionary journeys, Paul is simply fulfilling his God-given role as the apostle to the Gentiles. The second name mentioned in this greeting might seem a little less familiar to some readers because of the name that Paul uses for him in this letter. Silvanus is more recognized by the name used by Luke in Acts of the Apostles, Silas. There, Luke records some interesting information about this trusted co laborer of Paul's. Timothy, the third missionary mentioned in this greeting, is also well known to the readers of the New Testament. He has two New Testament letters addressed to him, 1st and 2nd Timothy. Timothy is Paul's most trusted helper. And you may remember that he is the one that Paul desires to see one final time as his death is approaching. You can find that in 2nd Timothy 4, 9 through 18. These are the three men sending this greeting to the church at Thessalonica. The story of how this team formed is worth noting. Their story is found in the book of Acts. Looking at the larger context of Luke's history, we can see how the Thessalonian ministry fits into the bigger picture of the second missionary journey. The gospel is moved out into the Gentile world, and Luke shows this in, if you will, two parallel tracks of ministry. First, we see God's movement of deliverance in Peter's preaching to Cornelius's household. Peter recognized instantly that God was saving Gentiles without their first being converted to Judaism. Now secondly, God called Paul and Barnabas to work in the church at Antioch. Now this was a largely Gentile church of rising power and influence. It is from this church, not from Jerusalem, that the great missionary journeys of the church will commence. Now these dual ministries of Gentile salvation and inclusion cause great confusion and resentment, don't they? Much of the debate in Acts, as well as the larger New Testament, surrounds Jewish resistance to the movement of God. Many Jewish believers wrongly see the salvific messianic gift as being given only to Israel. Thus, they argue, if Gentiles desire inclusion, let them first become a Jew through circumcision and taking on the yoke of the law. This controversy becomes so profound that a church-wide council is called to address the issue. The evidence is laid out carefully. The record of Paul and Barnabas's first missionary journey supports the argument for Gentile inclusion. The testimony of Peter strongly agrees with Paul and Barnabas, and yet it seems to be James, the respected Jerusalem leader who is most influential. He offers the solution that wins the day, and the council's ruling That salvation is offered to Gentiles without the need to be circumcised is carried out to the churches by trustworthy men. One such selected man was Silas, a leader in the Jerusalem church and a man described as a prophet and preacher. That can be found in Acts 15, 32. His connection with James will show that the Jerusalem church leaders are in full accord with the decision that's been offered. Now after carrying the decision to the churches, Silas obeys God's will and remains behind to minister in Antioch. God's providence is evident in that decision because soon Paul and Barnabas will begin to plan their second missionary journey. It's during that planning phase that these two beloved brothers in the faith find themselves at odds over the inclusion of John Mark on the journey. Now you may remember that Mark has abandoned them had abandoned them during the first missionary journey. For this reason, Paul simply cannot accept trusting one who had been previously found untrustworthy. Barnabas, ever the encourager, disagreed. He believed that Mark deserved a second chance to prove himself. Now this subject proved so divisive that Paul and Barnabas discontinued their work together. Well, it might be convenient to assign blame to either Paul or Barnabas, I think we should see the larger truth. John Mark would ultimately prove himself faithful. Even Paul acknowledges this in Second Timothy 4.11. And so that would seem to vindicate Barnabas' trust in John Mark. Nevertheless, Paul's principle is a biblical one. One should prove themselves in smaller things before weighty matters are trusted to them. If Mark had failed before, let him take smaller assignments to prove himself before he is given larger assignments. The larger truth that we should see here is that these two men of God both are behaving in Christian conscience, and they found themselves in disagreements, both standing on what they believe were biblical principles. Brothers and sisters, I want us to see the larger point here. We can see God's providential hand at work in the result. Instead of one missionary team at work, now there are two missionary teams at work. Barnabas teams up with John Mark while Paul works with Silas. And Silas is the right man for the mission. He's devout. He's trusted. He's hardworking. He's tried in the fires of persecution. He's also a man associated with Jerusalem, thus quieting any of the argument of a divide between Paul and James. Silas's presence with Paul. Marks that James is in accord with Paul. God's providence is on display, bringing together a great missionary team for the work ahead. And by the end of Acts chapter 15, these two men are ready to embark on a mission to revisit all the churches of the first missionary journey and to plant fellowships in new territories as God would open new doors. Having surveyed the authors of this letter, let us take a look at the recipients I want us to look at a hazardous history, a hazardous history. A quick continuation of the narrative of Acts will assist us here. Paul and Silas revisit the churches of the first missionary journey. At Lystra, Timothy is added to their team. And while Paul was delighted to retrace the steps of the first missionary journey, it was always his intention to go where no church had yet been formed. Paul desired to preach where no one had heard the name of Jesus Christ before. So once Paul received the Macedonian call, he jumped at the opportunity to evangelize this new area. He immediately visits the most prominent city of western Macedonia, Philippi. It was there that the missionary team met Lydia. And the scripture says the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. Acts 16, 14. She trusted Christ and was saved. While this early moment was a great success, It would not all be such smooth sailing. Unfortunately, trouble will be a recurrent theme during the Macedonian phase of the second missionary journey. The trouble began to brew in Philippi when Paul saw an enslaved girl who Luke describes as being possessed by a spirit of divination. The actual Greek text describes her as having the spirit of a python or Pythia. It refers to the cult of Delphi, normally associated with Corinth, there, mythology records Apollo slew the great python of the underworld. Having received several mortal wounds by Apollo's bow, the serpent crawled into the earth to die. The fumes of the decaying python would affect spiritually sensitive women who were under the power of Apollo. Under the power of both fume and call, the Pythia can prophesy and bring forth divination. Now these powers are profitable for the exploiters of this young girl. Paul recognized it for what it was. Paul recognized her state of demonic possession and desired to set her free by the power of God. These men, having seen their opportunity for exploitation taken away, seized Paul and Silas. They drugged them before the city magistrates and declared that these are some of those Jews who are known to be causing problems. Immediately the magistrates have them beaten with rods and thrown into jail. Now, we should take a moment to note the accusation made against Paul and Silas here because it seems to elicit a strong and immediate response. And the question we might ask is why? And while it's often thought that this is a reference to their Christian witness, we must remember that Paul is just now bringing the gospel to Philippi. New Testament scholar Abraham Malherby points to a much more likely culprit, a more general messianic Judaism. As we discussed in Romans, the Emperor Claudius expelled the Jewish people from Rome in 49 AD. This was for general disturbances and troublemaking, what you might call being a general nuisance to the public. Claudius's frustration with Judaism was not a late development, but is attested by the historical record even from the earliest days of his reign. An early letter to Alexandria demonstrates that the emperor saw Jews as a difficult and obstinate people. Such an attitude places Claudius in line with the preceding emperors, who were constantly frustrated by a people whose monotheism required special accommodation in Roman law and practice. Things were made worse empire wide by a messianic bent among Jews. Again, it would be a mistake to see a reference to Christianity here. Most of the troublesome messianic movements had nothing to do with Christianity. These problems forced Paul to leave Philippi and go to the most important city in Macedonia, Thessalonica. This great city, named for Alexander the Great's sister and founded by the king of Macedonia, was powerful and wealthy. Thessalonica was an influential port city and functioned as the hub of Roman administrative power in the region. This was the very type of city that Paul likely desired to evangelize when he planned the second missionary journey. I want us to take a moment and look in the Acts of the Apostles to see the historical record that Luke records of these missionaries as they enter in to this great city of Thessalonica. Beginning in Acts 17, verse 1, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as was his custom, went into them and For three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded. And a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews who were not persuaded became envious took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them. And these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king. Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Brothers and sisters, that's a great history recorded here. Paul enters Thessalonica and begins to preach in the synagogue. A few of the Jewish hearers responded. But the greater response was among the Gentile God-fearers. Now those God-fearers are Gentiles who believed in the God of Israel. They had not become a proselyte. They had not taken on the law. They had not taken on circumcision. But they were people who believed in the God of Israel. So there was a greater response among the Gentile God-fearers and the notable women of the city. Luke specifically states that a multitude of the God-fearing men And not a few of the leading women responded to the message. This was bound to cause similar problems to that which they'd experienced in Philippi. Because most of the synagogues in the Greco-Macedonian world relied heavily on the support of wealthy Gentile God-fearing men and women. The synagogue leaders kicked Paul out, and yet this, by God's grace, did not hinder Paul, who simply began to preach in the home of Jason, an early believer. The problem was that many of the God-fearers went too, taking their support with them and this would have likely been disastrous for the synagogue and for them a cause of great anger. We can see it implied in Luke's wording that the Jews had become envious. They were not happy at losing their congregants, but they were more unhappy at losing their finances and their synagogue's influence. They respond in a similar way to the Philippian uh, exploiters. They go on offense in hopes of getting Paul in legal jeopardy. They incited some of the immoral or wicked men, the poneros, from the marketplace, having them cause trouble, all with the aim of getting Paul arrested. Looking for Paul, they went to the home of Jason, probably where the missionaries were staying, and yet they weren't there. So they dragged Jason to the authorities. Again, the charge was that Paul is among those who have turned the world upside down. With the displeasure of the emperor toward such behavior, this is no minor charge. Still, the magistrates seem to have only sought security From Jason. This would have been a small amount of money to secure their release. This would be like bail today. It's interesting, isn't it? It likely signals that Jason had influence in the city, or maybe more likely that the wicked men, the Poneros men, the wicked men of the marketplace, were not trusted in their testimony. Regardless, Paul has to leave. Most scholars believe that it would have been a requirement for this securing of their release that the troublemakers had to leave town, and so. Paul and Silas and Timothy quietly leave. This isn't Paul's plan, but Paul knows that God has a plan. And so Paul moves on. The missionaries leave town. They make their way to Berea where they have the beginnings of a successful ministry. But soon enough, the troublemaking Thessalonian Jews make their way to Berea to stir up dissent. They were again successful. And Paul had to be whisked away by night for his own safety. He travels to Athens to wait for Silas and Timothy, whom he sent on missions to the Macedonian churches. Paul most likely sent Silas to Philippi. We say most likely because we don't know, but we do know that Timothy was sent to Thessalonica. Paul wanted to know how these churches were doing. He felt as if he had left these congregations as orphans without a needed theological foundation on which to stand. It must have been difficult for Paul to wait for their return, to wait to hear word on how these beloved congregations were doing. He was certainly aware of the danger that Silas and Timothy were undertaking as they went back to these cities. It's difficult for us to appreciate how long it took to receive an update in those days. No Twitter, no Facebook, no internet, no phones. No practical way of learning what was happening Across even modest distances, Paul would wait and pray that these young churches would have survived physically and, more important, spiritually by the grace of God. And that brings us to our final point this morning, a powerful purpose. Brothers and sisters, if there's anything I think Paul would want us to know coming out of our text today, it's that God has a powerful purpose. Paul's source of strength in all of this is knowing the God whom he serves knowing that God has a powerful purpose in their mission to take the gospel of Jesus Christ into Macedonia. He knows that God's word cannot return void and that God has sent them to reach a people in Philippi and Thessalonica to redeem. This doesn't mean that the work is easy. It doesn't mean that the work is safe. Paul knows in whose hands all things rest. Having left Athens for Corinth, one can imagine the apostles' great joy when his dear friends, Silas and Timothy, return. Timothy brings the report for which Paul has been waiting. It's a report that covers two areas of great concern for Paul. First, he wanted to learn the physical condition of the Thessalonian church. Were the people safe? Were they still under heavy persecution? And secondly, Paul wanted to know of their spiritual health. Had the limited teaching they had received adequately prepared them to stand and remain faithful in the face of persecution. Imagine Paul's elation when Timothy shares the news that not only had the church remained faithful, praise God, it was a thriving congregation. Gentiles were coming into the faith. The church was standing strong upon the truths that they had been taught, and they were helping other Christians form churches throughout Macedonia And beyond. Paul scarcely could have imagined or expected so good a report. This young Thessalonian church had a reputation for loving God and for loving one another. Now, that's not to say that this church was without problems. Their incomplete training had left them with some questions. How were they to understand continued persecution? How are they to understand the Lord's return? Had those who had died since Paul's departure missed the fulfillment of the blessings of Christ's return? This was no trivial question. Imagine a widow worrying over her recently deceased husband or a parent, their recently deceased child. What would become of them? Had they missed out on glory? In the year 50 AD, having received this update, the Apostle Paul sits down to address their concerns and he writes a letter of great pastoral and theological wisdom. Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. I want to close this morning acknowledging that we have covered a great deal of history and background and really have covered very little of the letter, (laughs) the first letter to the Thessalonians. But I truly believe that it's necessary if we're going to understand the letter which is before us moving forward. I truly believe that this letter is a needed resource for the church today. It's a letter written to a church in need of doctrinal growth and facing growing opposition from its culture. The church today is in a similar position. We stand in an era of growing hostility to the church in the West. And our dear brothers and sisters in the East and Middle East face open persecution. Add to this that there have been few periods since the reformation of the church where the church is so theologically malnourished. This combination is a very serious problem. We must look no further than this letter to see Paul's concern for a potentially malnourished church facing persecution. Still through it all, Paul remained steadfast. And the question is why? Why and how could Paul remain steadfast through it all? Because he knew the God in whose hand all such matters rest. He understood the providence of God, whereby God superintends such matters according to the good counsel of his own will. Paul could have hope in the midst of trouble because he knew God's providence in the midst of problems. In this truth, Paul placed his full confidence. Brothers and sisters, it's my prayer that this journey that we're undertaking through this letter will help us to do the same by God's amazing grace. We look at a world out there that is full of problems and trouble and it can be overwhelming. We hear of viruses in China. We have many in our congregation facing surgery in the the days ahead or have just gone through surgery. We know there are problems and troubles in this world. Our master told us, in this world you will have trouble. But what Paul understood as he wrote this letter is the rest of that verse. Rejoice, for I have overcome the world. Paul knew that although the world seems to be established on very shaky foundations, and the hopes of this world are placed on shaky earthly foundations for most people, but Paul could look beyond it and Paul could have hope regardless of the situation because he knew in whom he believed. He knew in whose hands all things rest. Paul could have a hope because he trusted God, his sovereignty, his providence, his plan. Brothers and sisters, as we begin our journey through this letter, I pray that this letter will help us to learn to do the same. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the Apostle Paul and for Luke, who faithfully recorded the word inspired by the Holy Spirit. We ask, Father, that as we think about these letters, You would give us rest in this truth, that you are a sovereign God. Father, we ask that you would help us have an unshakable faith in Christ for his everlasting glory. Amen.